Father, we love You and we're grateful for Your Word. We're grateful that You uh, give gifts to Your church and thank You that You've given us gifted men and women that are able to lead us in praise and we're able to sing to You, God, and to express a heart of gratitude. And that's what it's about, Lord. We want to worship You in spirit and in truth. We want to worship You sincerely, genuinely, from the heart, God, and we want to worship You according to truth. So we love to sing of You, God, who You are, what You've done, Your faithfulness, Your goodness. And now as we transition into the, the part of our, our gathering where we open Your Word and we study it together, Father, this is simply a uh, continuation of that worship that we have already entered into. And so I pray that just as You have been exalted and moving in the hearts of the folks in this room, that You would continue to do that, Lord, even now. I pray that we would be greatly encouraged by Your Word today. I pray that we would be instructed. I pray that we would learn of You, God, in a deeper way. And I thank You, Father, that You are here and that You are faithful, God, to meet with us. We praise You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Okay, so as I have mentioned uh, time and time again, the theme of the book of Romans, you guys ought to, to know this pretty well by now, and I'm going to keep throwing it at you. I want it to be where I can ask you and you can answer it with no hesitation. And that is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. From cover to cover in the book of Romans, Paul is making it very clear. God Himself is righteous. He has a righteous standard that we really cannot meet, but God imparts His righteousness to us by grace. And that is great news. And we are justified by faith. The just shall live by faith. And so, uh, chapter 1, verse 16 of Romans says that very thing. Uh, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so that is the, the central theme, the righteousness of God. And I would say uh, under that, the just shall live by faith. And so the first 18 verses, we spent some time there, that was the greetings. <clears throat> and then we moved into this section that we are currently in, the context we are currently in, I would call it universal guilt. Paul's making it very clear that we are all guilty before a holy God. That we are all in trouble. And he makes that very plain and very clear before he gets into the good news. Because we can't fully understand just how good the good news is until we have some understanding of how bad the bad news is. And so Paul spends quite a bit of time making that case. And so you'll recall in verses 18-32, through 32, we address the pagan idolater and the, the gross immorality that these folks were engaged in, they were suppressing the, the revelation of God that had been given to them. They discarded that. They discounted it. And they were given over to gross immorality. But then we moved into chapter 2, and Paul begins to have this, this dialogue. Remember I talked about that last week, that invisible conversation I think a lot of us can relate with, when you can almost anticipate what someone would say and you, you kind of go through this thing in your head where you're having this invisible conversation and then I would say this back to them if they said that and uh, it's almost as if that's what Paul is doing here so he anticipates after talking about these pagan idolaters and the gross immorality that the self-righteous man would rise up and say you're right Paul they should be condemned they are guilty shame on them but then Paul says yeah but who are you who are you to cast judgment on them when you yourself are guilty of the same thing? So Paul addresses that judgmental hypocrisy there, verses 1 through 4. Now, he contrasts that with the righteous judgment of God. You have the unrighteous judgment of the hypocrite, the judgmental hypocrite, but then Paul turns from there and talks about the true righteous judgment of God Himself. So we spent some time talking about that last week. We talked about the fact that God judges based on that which is right. He is perfectly just. He is holy. And the judge of the earth will do that which is right. And He's able to judge based on motives because He can see into the hearts of men. We will be judged by the secrets of our hearts, it says, um, in the day of judgment. And so there are so many different ways in which God goes about executing judgment. 
But today, I would say this is a continuation of that. So I've titled this God's Righteous Judgment, Part 2. And this is God Looks at the Heart. God is a righteous judge. He is just. And He judges us based on our heart. He looks at the inner man. He looks at not so much what's going on on the outside, because people can be really deceived by that. We can put on a good front. We can look pretty good. And some people can look at that and think, man, that, that guy or that gal, they've really got it together. But God looks at the heart. God looks at the inner man. He's not deceived. As a righteous judge, He has the ability to do just that. And so, that's the kind of righteousness that you and I need. It's not just outward, external righteousness. And that is important. I don't want to minimize that. We certainly don't want to be living unrighteously, outwardly, right? But that in and of itself is not enough. We must have this inner righteousness. And so a couple of verses, Matthew 5. Jesus often dealt with the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees. They had this down to a science. They really leaned on their righteousness, their outward appearance. Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a tall order. The people of that day would look at the scribes and Pharisees and say, how in the world could you possibly exceed that righteousness? They've got it down to a science. But that wasn't the righteousness that Jesus was talking about because they may have looked good on the outside, but inwardly they were dead men, dead. And so that kind of righteousness they actually had was the kind of righteousness that Isaiah addresses in Isaiah 64.6 where he says that, our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. Our externals. Outward righteousness that has no inward righteousness. It's simply externals. That to God means nothing. It's filthy rags, filthy garments. He's not pleased with that. He's disgusted by it, in fact. And it's amazing to think that oftentimes we will uphold those things before God. Look at what I have done for you, God. And he looks at that and says, that is disgusting. <laughs> That is filthy rags. That's what externals amount to apart from the heart. And so Paul, he came to realize this in a very graphic way because Paul was a, a, a Pharisee. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And so just as Paul is saying here in Philippians, that's the very thing that he's talking about in Romans. That is the kind of righteousness that God cares about, that righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, that inward righteousness, having a heart towards God, a sincere, genuine heart that loves Him. And you know what that produces? Outward righteousness. And God is pleased with that. And so, outward righteousness should be uh, the, the fruit, but it's not the root. The root is our love for Christ, our devotion to Him, a, a, a transformed heart. We are born again from the inside out. And so when we have that genuine love for Him, it's going to show. It's going to be evident by our actions. But we really should have both. And that's what Paul is saying here. That's what God is looking for. God is a righteous judge and He looks at the heart. He looks at the inner woman. He looks at the inner man. And that's the point that he's making here. And so that's really the crux of this whole message is God looks at the heart, the inner man, the inner woman. That's what God is looking for. Martin Luther, the, uh, the great Protestant reformer of uh, the 1600s, he referred to this righteousness as an alien righteousness. And I like that because it's foreign to us. It's outside of us. It's not something that we can just produce. It's not something that we can just turn on. We have to go outside of ourselves to get it. We have to go to Christ to have it. And so that's, that's what we're looking at today. The, the reality that God does indeed look at the heart. Just let me make one distinction. Um, in the beginning of this series here, dealing with depravity and, and um, 
universal guilt. I talked about how sometimes we'll make statements like, you know, God knows my heart. And that's actually more of a, a frightening thing to me than anything. I don't take comfort in saying something like that because God actually knows, He does know my heart. And he knows that I'm, it's radically wicked and that I'm in trouble. What most people mean when they say that is God understands my intentions. God knows that I'm being sincere and other people may not know that or believe that, but God knows. And so I get that and that makes sense. So today when I talk about God looks at the heart, I'm not necessarily talking about the heart uh, in the same sense that I've been talking about. I'm talking about it as if God looks at the inner man, who you really are, what you really are thinking on the inside, because oftentimes it can be to two totally different things. The outside can look really good, it can be really impressive, and the inside can be deader than dead, as I've already mentioned. And so God wants to see that the inside is right and that the outside follows so with that, Romans chapter 2, verse 17. He says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law. You make your boast in God. You know His will, and you approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and the truth in the law. So Paul says you, you seem to have this, this lengthy resume here. You have these externals. You have these things that bring you some sort of confidence. And uh, I, you can almost categorize these. He you said you, you, you're called a Jew. You rest on the law. It's kind of like the status. This is who I am. This is what I have. And they had a lot of pride in that. The Jews had a lot of pride in the fact that they were God's chosen people and that they had been given the law. And that is great. That's important. But that in and of itself did not make them right. And he goes on to say, You boast in God. You know His will. You approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, having the form of knowledge and truth. So they certainly had some level of knowledge. They had a greater knowledge of God than I would say the rest of the world. God had given them a very specific and special revelation of Himself through the Old Testament. We talked about general revelation. The whole world knows there is a God based on creation itself, if for no other reason. But God gave the Jews the, the written law, and in it, a greater revelation of Himself. So now they've got status, they've got knowledge, confident, He says, that you're a guide to the blind, a light in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. So they saw themselves as uh, leaders, even, you may have status, you may have knowledge, you may be a leader, you may have influence, you may see yourself as someone who can instruct people or be a light to the, to, uh, the darkness. Even though maybe this would describe them, it still did not save them. And so Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, I already read a couple of verses from this text, I'm going to continue with that. He says this, and this was, this was Paul. This described him very well. And he said, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. So all these things that I have mentioned here in Romans 17-20 through 20 could be said of Paul. Paul had a resume like you could not believe. And at one point in his life, he totally stood upon that to make him right before God. But he came to realize all of that was, meant nothing. He, the language he's using here is like a profit column and a loss column. And he said, the things that I used to boast in, the things that I was so convinced had me in good standing with God, I come to realize actually had me empty. I was in the red, bankrupt. And so I gladly gave all of that away. I forsook that and now I'm found in Christ. Not having a, a righteousness that comes from the law, but that righteousness that comes through Him in faith. And that, that was gain to Paul. So Paul had to be saved out of his self-righteousness. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? You know, oftentimes God will save us out of a, a lifestyle of debauchery, depravity, 
And in some ways, I think it, it seems almost easier for folks that are in that life because they know they've messed up. They know they've done bad things. You don't have to convince them of that. They recognize their need for a Savior. But the people that are more difficult, I think, to reach are the self-righteous people. Hey, I'm a good person. You know, I don't do those things. I'm, I'm all right. What, what need have I for a Savior? And Paul was saved out of that. Paul thought that he had this thing down. He thought that he was good. And God rescued him out of his self-righteousness. And this is just a, an interesting thing. And I, I watched this happen even in addictions ministry. I saw a lot of people who came out of that background of debauchery, depravity. And then they think it's about becoming a good person. So now they've got to start keeping the rules and, and looking good on the outside. And they might bypass God altogether. Uh, they just think that it's about being a good person now, living a productive life. And so they go from the, you know, outwardly being bad to outwardly being good, but they're still lost. And Paul started out as being a good person, and he was lost, and he came to realize that. And, uh, you know, before I, I came to Christ years ago, that, that was my mindset, was one day I'm going to get my life right, and then I'll come to God. And that, that's the way that, that's a trap that we can fall into. I remember riding down the road one evening with a buddy of mine and uh, we were just, had been partying and we were going home and we drove past this church and he said, you know, Rob, one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my life right and I'm going to go to church. And that sounded good to me. That was profound. But I come to realize not too long after that, it doesn't work that way. You're not going to get right and then come to God. You come to God and then He makes you right in His Son and then He begins to change you from the inside out. And so just as Paul was saved out of his self-righteousness, uh, here in Romans he's making that same appeal. Just because you have all these things going for you, it doesn't mean anything. That's all externals. It's all outward. And so what might that look like for us in the day and age we live? And you might hear things like this. Hey, I work. I pay my bills. I pay taxes, I go to church, I'm generous, I give financially, I give to charities, I give to the church, I serve, I do community service, I serve in my church even, I take care of my family, I'm kind to people, I don't steal, I'm not an abusive person, I don't do drugs, I don't cuss, I don't cheat, I don't lie. Hey, those are all great things. It's all great that you do those things and you don't do those things, but it doesn't make you right with God. That's all externals. You can, have, you can be dead inside, lost, separated from God, and still do those kinds of things. You understand? And so that's, that's what Paul's trying to address here. That is what he's trying to address. And honestly, guys, I think that this may speak to more of us than, than we realize. Um, you know, the, the message about the pagan idolater, I know some of us can totally relate with that, but I think some of us can totally relate with this. And it's a trap for Christians too. Christians come to Christ, they're saved by grace, and then they think it's all about works. They think that it's all a matter of externals now. And it's a trap that we can fall into. We are saved by grace. We are kept by grace. It's all God. Amen? Amen? And He looks at the heart. And our hearts can grow cold. Our hearts can grow far from God. And we might be doing everything right outwardly. And we're so far from Him inwardly. So I would just say God wants your heart. God wants all of you. He doesn't just want your outside externals. He wants your heart he wants you from the inside and out. And so I'm going to come back to that at the very end, but I would just I want to keep coming to that all the way throughout. So Paul and Romans addressed the the externals the, that they could have confidence in these things. Now moving on in verse 21, we're going to talk about kind of the deception of external righteousness. Verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So he asks this question, you teach others, 
do you not teach yourself? Okay, so you have this knowledge, you have this status, you have this influence, you claim to be a teacher to the ignorant. Have you not taught yourself? And so now Paul kind of hits them with that, kind of puts them back on their heels, and then he, he these, these rhetorical questions, you preach against stealing, are you a thief? And so, you know, it could be that people are being judgmental, towards other issues and they're doing the same exact thing. We talked about that already. That does happen, as crazy as that may sound. It could be that uh, someone's standing in judgment of someone else. They may not be doing the same exact things, but they are very much guilty in a lot of the, the very same ways. And so someone might look at somebody who steals and think, shame on them, I would never do that. Except you'll milk the, the clock at work. When you should be working, you're doing something else, or still office supplies, or maybe just, you know, a little bit on your taxes. You budge just a little bit. Not, not, you know, I'm not hurting anybody, right? There, it's amazing how we can make those kinds of compromises. We can look at other people and say, "How dare they?" But we're really guilty of the same thing before God. You who do not, you don't commit adultery. Are you an adulterer? You know, you might look at somebody who's fallen in the sin of adultery and you can cast judgment on them but you're looking at porn or you know checking some some girl out walking out in public or some guy or whatever the case may be you see and it's it's easy to fall into this kind of stuff or maybe I don't do that and I can look down on them for it but you're just as guilty just as guilty he says you hate idols do you rob temples one commentator said that it was a common practice in that day to loot um, pagan centers of worship, steal their little idols, and then go out into the public square, the marketplace, and sell those same idols as a, basically a, a seller of religious relics. And so it's like you hate idolatry and you claim to be righteous. You don't worship false gods, but then you'll steal them and go sell them for profit under the pretense that you're a, a seller of religious relics, right? And so that kind of stuff was happening. And Paul was pointing to the hypocrisy of that. And, and all of this is really summed up underneath this one thing. You boast in the law, do you break it? Well, the answer is yes. So this is your status, you have knowledge, you have influence, but you break the very law that you boast in. And so he's speaking to the deception of externals because they may look good outwardly, but inwardly they are not good they're not in a right place and paul's trying to pull the rug right out from underneath them the very thing that you had confidence in does nothing for you before god and that was the same thing that paul said you know i had all this going for me so i thought but i come to realize that actually had me in a place of loss and so i gave that up for christ now jesus would regularly deal with the pharisees for this kind of thing they really thought that they they had it together because of their outward appearance, because of their externals, because of their outward righteousness. And so in Matthew chapter 23, I think there's eight times where Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees! And then He rails at their hypocrisy. I just picked out three here. I wanted to read these to you because I, I think it just hits it right on the head. He says, Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. It says, These things you, have, you ought to have done without leaving the others undone, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So I love this. He says, You hypocrites. You know, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. These are spices. What he's basically getting at is that they're tithing out of everything that they have. And that's pretty extreme, you know. We tithe financially, and there are plenty of ways that we give, but I don't like literally go through everything I have and come in and throw a couple of bags of salt and pepper or whatever in the tithe box, right? I mean, these guys were going overboard. They were being as rigid as they could be with outward issues. But Jesus said, you should have been mindful of the weightier matters, justice, mercy, and faith. That's what the law is really about. That's the essence of it, the heart of it, the spirit of it. And then he says this, you blind guide, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. So what, what he's essentially saying there is the gnat was the smallest of the unclean animals in the law. 
and a camel would be the biggest. They would actually filter their water through a cloth so that they didn't inadvertently swallow a gnat and break the law. But then he says you turn around and swallow a camel whole. And so that's, that's pretty good. They're, they're so careful, so meticulous about the smallest little things and they're neglecting the massive matters of the law altogether in their hypocrisy. Well, verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first uh, cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. And so Jesus says it's about the inside. You can cleanse the outside all you want, but you must cleanse the inside. That's what really matters to God. It's the heart. It's the inner person. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like a whitewashed tomb, which indeed appears beautiful outwardly, but inside it's full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you are outwardly you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So he says, you're like a grave. You know, when they would have festivals there in, in Israel, they would go through and clean the whole town and have it looking really good for all the visitors, all uh, the the sojourners and pilgrims that were going to come in. And they would even go through and they would paint the tombs on the outsides white so that it would look nice and clean. But guess what was inside that tomb? Still a bunch of corpses, dead men's bones. And Jesus said, that's what you're like. You make the outside look nice and clean, but the inside is full of skeletons, dead men's bones. And he says that you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's what God sees. God looks at the Pharisees and He sees that on the outside they look really good. On the inside they're dead. And therefore all of that stuff on the outside to God is filthy rags, filthy garments. It's disgusting to Him. He's not pleased with it because God wanted their hearts. You understand? God wants your heart. God wants my heart. Alright. Moving on in Romans verse 25. We're going to talk about the fact that externals are so very unreliable. You cannot count on that. Verse 25 says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? It's interesting to me how when there are awkward things in the Bible, you have to say it like eight times in a paragraph. I don't understand why sometimes the Bible is written that way. So let me just start by saying what Paul is basically saying here is that if you are relying on externals rather than grace, you're in big trouble. If you think that by keeping the law, you are going to be saved, you have to keep the whole law then perfectly. And you cannot. You will be damned. You will be found with guilt. You can't have both. It can't be Christ plus the law. It has to be grace and that alone. So... Since Paul goes, uh, you know, with, with this issue of circumcision, and he uh, says it like 15 times, I just wanted to kind of address this. Um, it is awkward. It's not something that we usually talk about. And, and uh, you know, I think really any conversation generally, it's not something that I would choose as, a, as an illustration or a spiritual illustration but it's in the Bible and Paul is using it. So I just want to address that. If you, if you don't know what it is, well, I ain't, I'm not going to tell you. That's not what I'm here to do right now, okay? But in the Old Testament, it was a sign of the covenant. God said that you were to circumcise the, the males um, eight days after they are born. And this was a symbol that they were marked, that they belonged to God, the, the nation the nation of Israel, the, the, the national chosen covenant people. And it also kind of represented the cutting away of the flesh. So often we talk about that. This, this nature of ours, this sin nature, it's, it's opposed to God. It's, it's enmity against God. 
And so it's kind of like saying, I, I am cutting away the flesh and I am consecrating myself to God. I, I'm going to live a, a life of spiritual devotion to Him. So that is the case for Christians. We would say that we, we don't live according to the flesh, we live according to the Spirit. We live by grace. We're living for the Lord. And so in, in a sense, that's, that's what it was saying. And it was a very, very important thing to the covenant people and to God. And God gave that to Abraham, and He said from this point forward, this is a requirement, a righteous requirement for my people. And it was very much a part of the law. And so they really found their identity in this, in, in circumcision. And that was a real issue in the early church. Paul addresses this in Galatians, because people were coming to Christ, they were saved by grace through faith, they started out in the Spirit, but then the, the Judaizers were coming in and saying, you know, that's all good, but you still need to keep the law. You still need to observe circumcision and the Sabbath and the feast and all of these other issues. And Paul said, no, no you do not. If you start trying to observe all these other things, then grace means absolutely nothing. That you're saying the cross was not enough. That the cross was not enough. It's a good start, but now let me keep all these laws and be all about these rituals and externals so that I can more or less make up what Christ didn't accomplish. That's, and that, in a nutshell, is what is being said. And so Paul, he speaks to that very thing in Galatians 5. He says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. And so Paul's making it very clear here. It's not about outward righteousness. It's not about the externals. Those aren't going to get you right with God. It's about the heart. It's a spiritual circumcision. He's going to use that language as, as we move on. And then if you start depending on these other things, then Christ will profit nothing for you. You're on your own. Now it's up to you to be perfect. And I, I would just say, you know, for any of us in here who, who've ever even tried for a second, we know that just does not work. We just cannot do it. Thank God for grace. Thank God for grace. And Paul even says there in Romans, will not the uncircumcised be justified in the judge of him who is circumcised? He's talking about the righteous person who has come to God by faith in Christ, though he may not be circumcised, maybe he didn't keep that, that law, he is still justified in the judge of him who may be circumcised. You may have this other guy over here that's got all the externals. He's done all the things in the law outwardly, looks real good, but he's still dead. He's still damned. And then you've got the other guy who hasn't kept all of these externals and rituals, but he has given his heart to Christ. He has been saved by faith, and he in fact is justified in the judge of him who is circumcised. And so that's the whole argument that Paul's making here. And he uses Abraham as an example of that in Galatians 3. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Genesis talks about that very thing. Well, guess what? That was before the law. God gave Abraham circumcision, but before he even gave that law to him, he had already been justified because he believed the promises of God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So it's always been faith. Always been faith. And it will never be anything more than that. Okay, And it's faith in God. It's the inner man. It's the heart. Because you know what? God wants your heart. God wants your heart. So Paul's going to go on here in verse 28, Romans. He's going to talk about really the futility of externals. So verse 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul's making it clear. It's about the heart. It's about the inner man. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but who is one inwardly. And so here he's talking about Jews in the sense of they are God's chosen people. God chose them, God blessed them, God gave them all these wonderful revelations, God even brought the, the promised one, the Messiah, through the Jewish nation, 
They had been blessed in many ways. Paul's going to talk about that in Romans 3. But he said it's not really about outward or externals. It's about inner. And so you have the... And Paul even says, and I think it's in Romans 9, not all of Israel is Israel. Just because you are nationally born uh, as a Jew or ethnically a Jew, if your heart is not right, then in God's sight you're not really His his chosen one. You're not really a Jew. And so that's kind of what Paul is saying here. It's not merely outward, it's inward. And circumcision is not that which is outward in the flesh, but it's the circumcision of the heart. It's that inner reality. Paul takes up the same theme in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 verse 11, it says this, In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So he's talking spiritually here by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You were buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And so again, Paul is just showing the nature of this whole idea of circumcision. It's a spiritual reality. And that is the case with so much of the things that we observe and practice in Christianity and the language that you will often hear used. Like, I've been crucified with Christ. That's scriptural language. You hear it. Literally, I have obviously not been crucified. But spiritually, I have identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I have reckoned the old man dead. When I became alive in Christ, when He made me new, that is who I am now. That is my identity I'm a Christian. I'm a follower. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave Himself for me, who loved me. Amen? Amen. And so, that's a spiritual reality. Again, baptism. Paul, Paul mentioned that there in Colossians. When we're being baptized, that's, that represents something. You've gone down into the grave. That's what the water represents. You have come up into the newness of life. You have been resurrected out of the grave. And you are now a new creation. Now, the waters of baptism does not change you. That's a spiritual reality that happens upon the new birth when you come to Christ by faith and the Spirit uh, dwells within you. You are literally born again. But that's what the, the waters of baptism represent. Again, it's, it's spiritual. Colossians 3 talks about um, you know we, we died, we, we rose again, and we're to ascend into the heavenly places where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. So we ought to live that same way, just as Christ ascended into heaven. Now we ought to have a heavenly perspective. Now obviously, here I am, physically, literally, I'm standing right in front of you. But I have ascended with Christ in the heavenly places. This is not my home. I'm just a, a, a pilgrim. I'm just passing through. And I, I don't want to have an earthly perspective as much as I can. I want to be heavenly minded. I want to have my focus, my, my sight on Christ. When so much is happening down here, there's a lot to get upset about down here, is there not? You just look at the news. You know, I used to not really be into the news. And I don't know why since I moved to California I have gotten into it and I can't seem to stop, and I'm just like, man, life was so much easier when I was ignorant to all of these things. Uh, but it's having that heavenly perspective. We have ascended with Christ. You know, communion, the Lord's Supper, we, we celebrate that monthly. Well, we're not literally eating Jesus' flesh and drinking His blood. And, you know, there are some denominations and movements who would claim that they're doing that. I won't get into that. It's a different study. But... um it's spiritual. It represents something. It, the idea that Christ gave Himself for me and I receive that. I take that in. I identify with it. And it is mine. I become one with Christ in that moment. It's spiritual. And so, that's what it's always been about, guys. Now, you could do all those things outwardly and still be lost. You can get baptized. You can take communion. Uh, and still inwardly be lost. And so it's always been about the heart. And that's why God, He didn't like it when people did the outward thing, but their heart was far from Him. He said, I don't care about your, your, you know, your feast, 
your sacrifices, if your heart is far from me, it means nothing to me. It's always been about the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16 says this, So it was when they came, they looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Samuel went to anoint the king of Israel and he saw this guy here, Eliab, and he thought, man, that's the guy right there. And this is what the Lord said to him, Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what God cares about. God cares about your heart. And then Paul also makes, uses this language, it's the, the spirit of the law and not the letter. The spirit of the law and not the letter. I want to address that. There is a difference. When we talk about the spirit of the law, we're talking about the essence of it. The, as Jesus mentioned this earlier, you know, the mercy, justice, the heart of the law. Oftentimes when we hear the law, we think bad. We think the law, it's heavy, it's, it's a curse. It's not a curse, it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. In it, you see the heart of God. The problem is we just can't keep the law. And in that sense, it is bad. And it was intended to be that, to drive us to Christ as a Savior. But there are many wonderful things that we find in the law. For instance, God says that if you see your enemy and his ox has fallen into a ditch, you are bound by the law to get that ox out of the ditch. For mercy's sake, on that animal. It doesn't matter that it's your enemy. You may even wish some sort of harm upon this person, but if you see this ox in a ditch, you've got to get it out. Did you, you didn't know that God was an animal rights activist, did you? <laughs> Anybody know what PETA is? You ever heard of it? You know, I'm a member of PETA. People eating tasty animals. <laughs> Anyways. Mercy. Okay, reaping law, the reaping laws. Laws of the harvest. You know, benevolence. God said that when you, when you go through the, the grain field and you glean, anything you drop on the ground, you have to leave it. And you're not allowed to, to harvest the corners either. This is for the strangers, for, for homeless folks, for the widows, for the orphans. God cared about them. You know that. God had a heart of compassion and mercy and benevolence towards those folks. I'm sure we've all heard this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? You hear that and you generally think God's demanding retribution. You got me and I'm going to get you back, right? That's not what that's saying. It's actually the opposite. It's limiting retribution. Because here's how, how we are. If you get me, I'm going to get you twice as bad. If you knock out one of my teeth, I'm going to take your head off. That's how, that's how we are. And God said, you can't do that. He said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Really, the, the, the ideal thing would be mercy altogether, not to, to respond uh, alike at all. But He says, if you must, then... It has to be fair. Even the Sabbath law, the thing that the Pharisees really abused and turned into a burden, was given to us as a gift from God for rest because we will work ourselves into the ground. Human nature, not always, but a lot of times people will go, go, go. And God said, look, this is for you. It's a gift. But they perverted it and turned it into a burdensome thing. I can't think of a better example of this than Matthew chapter 12. Jesus and His disciples are walking through a grain field on, on the Sabbath day. And I'll read to you. It says this, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and His disciples, they were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So basically, you could, you could just grab the heads of grain off the stalk, do like that, and blow the chaff off. And what was left, you could eat it. Uh, it was like a gummy substance. You could chew on it and get great sustenance out of it. So that's what they were doing. Well, verse 2, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Well, they had already determined that that constitutes work. In fact, you weren't even allowed to spit on the Sabbath because if you were to spit and it hit the dirt and created a little furrow, you have just plowed. You have worked on the Sabbath. And so that's how crazy they had gotten. And so Jesus is here with His disciples. They're hungry. They're eating the heads of grain there. The Pharisees come out of nowhere. They see this. And they say, Aha! They're breaking the law. And so Jesus says this, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? 
he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with, were with him, but only for the priest. So what Jesus is referring to here is that when David began to rise uh, with popularity uh, in the Old Testament, well, there was another king that was still over him, Saul. And Saul was jealous and he became a maniac. And David had to run for his life. So when he ran, he went to the, the temple and he found a priest there and he asked for food. And the priest said, well, all we have is this showbread here. This is not common bread. It's not for the common person, but you can have it. And in that moment, hunger trumped the, the, let, the letter of the law. The spirit of the law trumped the letter. You understand? There was something more serious going on, more a weightier issue, and that was human need, human hunger. And so Jesus points to that and says, that was right. What the priest did for David was right. And so what we're doing here is also right. And so Jesus says, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So there's a situation where you have the letter of the law and you have the heart of the law. And what did Jesus pick? The heart of the law. Because these Pharisees, they would look good on the outside, but they were dead in, inwardly and they were looking at other people with this, this heavy, harsh, outward uh, expectation that they themselves couldn't even carry. And Jesus rebuked them for that. All right, we'll, we're closing here, wrapping it up now in Romans. Uh, the last line there in the last verse says, whose praise is from God and not from men. And that's what it's all about. We want the praise from God. Amen? Outward externals oftentimes can be for the recognition of men. Oftentimes. We may look really good and we may really like the praise of men. The applaud of men. But um, Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this very thing. He says, Whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. It's inward. Don't do what you do to be seen by men. You're doing it for the Lord. And from Him you will receive a reward. And it's the Lord Jesus that you're serving. And so external righteousness can be for outward recognition. It could also really lead, it does, it leads to weak worship. Let's just be straight here. If inwardly you are off, you are dead, you're certainly not going to offer worship the God that is pleasing to Him. And even as a Christian, if our hearts grow far from Him and we begin to be merely concerned about externals, our worship will follow. It will be weak. And Jesus says that in Matthew 15. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, These people draw near to Me with their mouth and they honor Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. And in vain they worship Me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so I just want to close with this one little uh, story from Malachi. The, the sacrificial system had been put back into place in Israel at this time. They had been taken into captivity 70 years into Babylon. They come back. They're back in the temple. They're sacrificing. But you know what they were doing? They were bringing in the leftovers. They were bringing in maimed goats and sheep, lame, blind, just the worst of the worst. And God didn't receive that. He was disgusted by it. And he says this, And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? That's Nehemiah. Nehemiah would have been the governor before this time and after this time. And he was saying, would you give that to him? What he's really saying is, would you give that to the IRS? And if the IRS wants something from you, guess what you do? You give them what they want. Right? We don't play around with the IRS. But why, why with God, who is infinitely greater, do we just give Him the leftovers? And that's essentially what he's saying here. And then he says this, Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle a fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. 
That's what God thinks about filthy rags. That's how He sees offerings of worship that come from someone who does not inwardly know or worship God. And I, you know, I would say to the Christian too, even though we're, we're born again, we're new in Christ, we're forgiven, it can become very much about checking the box and just looking good outwardly. God wants your heart. If you don't know the Lord, He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants you to know Him. He wants to change you from the inside out. And He also wants to work on the outside. God loves us as we are. He would have us come to Him as we are, but He loves us too much to let us stay that way. But it starts with the heart. If you don't know, God loves you. He gave His Son to die for you so that if you put your trust in Him, you could be forgiven of your sins and you could know Him as a heavenly Father and that one day you will stand before Him in His presence and glory forever and ever. That is the good news of the Gospel. For the Christian, I just want to reiterate this, God wants your heart. First and foremost, remember early on in my Christian walk, I was sitting down with a brother, an older, wiser brother, and I was just laying out my game plan. These are all the things that I want to do. And this is how I'm going to do it and when I'm going to do it. And he looked at me and said, get real. He said, seriously, get real. And I, I didn't like that, uh, honestly. But he was kind of checking me. And then he said, and here's the deal. God just wants your heart. I know you've got all these plans and I know that you want to do all these things, but God just wants your heart. I never forgot that. Not to say those things are bad or that we shouldn't uh, move forward and, and have dreams and goals and plans and all of that. But God wants your heart, first and foremost. God is glorified in who we are and the fruit that's in our lives. John 15 talks about that. Jesus never talked about gifts in the Gospel. Did you know that? He always talks about fruit. He always talks about our character. And you know what that tells me? God is far more concerned with who we are in Him than what we do for Him. And so God wants your heart. God wants your love. God wants your devotion. God wants sincere love and worship. And He'll take care of those externals. You know, but it'll be His doing in His time, and it starts with a heart that is for Him, a heart that loves Him. So let's give Him our hearts, shall we? As we close with a song of worship, I've been greatly blessed by this sermon this week. I do feel like God has kind of lit a fresh fire in my heart with that one simple statement, God wants my heart. God wants your heart. Does He have your heart? Or does your heart belong to something else? Does something else have your heart? If it does, I would ask you to repent of that today and ask, tell God, I'm sorry, Lord, I want you to have my heart.